Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. It was really important for me to um, include Yumi Sakugawa um, and her work. Um, you know, sadly, she's not here with us physically, but um, she's featured in the book, um, as well as Nyla's work in um, experiencing comics. And um, I have just a, a presentation. Um, actually, before we get started, I kind of want to hear um, who folks are. I'm an educator, so I like to I like to get to know the people in the room. And so, if you could just, if you feel comfortable, if you want to just say your name and um, your experience with comics. And we'll start over here. <laughs> My name is Okiri. I'm an experimental animator. So I, I do some pretty comics um, in my department as comics. Cool. And as a, I make comics. Yeah. Um, I'm Ryan Gelman. I What what age? Um, like from probably five to nine. Oh, that's great. Cool. Great. Well, thank you all for introducing yourselves. Um, so I, um, I teach at UC Riverside. Um, I am a lecturer there. Um, and what that means is I'm, I'm just a part-time person there. Um, but I, um, okay. I grew up reading comics. Um, my cousin, my older cousin, Sean, I grew up in the Bay Area. Um, he read John, Johnny the Homicidal Maniac and had posters of that comic in his bedroom. And it like terrified me, but I was also curious and interested. Um, in, hit, in those comics. Um, he also, my cousin, um, handed uh, Watchmen to me when I was maybe 17 or 18. And, um, but I, I grew up experiencing um, reading comics, borrowing comics from my cousins. Um, it wasn't until I encountered Linda Berry's work in college and I read um, 100 Demons and there's a story in there um, in which she talks about the Aswang. Um, and the Aswang is a, a shapeshifter, um, she's a witch. Um, in the, some stories, she's portrayed as a dog with red glowing eyes. Um, but the well-known story um, that is told about her, and she's a, a Philippine mythic creature, is that during the daytime, um, her body, she's just this typical housewife and mother, and she attends to her duties. And at night, her body splits in half, um, torso from legs, and she hides her legs in banana groves. And the top half of her body flies into the night looking for fetuses to suck from, from women. So this is a story I heard as a kid. And um, my mom told me this story. And my grandmothers told me this story, although they denied it later on as, an adult, as I was an adult. And a lot of the, the folk tales and the myths that I grew up hearing, I did not see anywhere in books. I didn't see them in the children's books I read. I didn't see them um, in the Sweet Valley High School books that I read. I mean, there, there are no brown people really in those books anyway. But um, I just I knew of the Aswang uh, through the stories my family told me. And it wasn't until I encountered Linda Berry's work, and she has a whole chapter on the Aswang, and she talks about the Aswang as this creature that um, her mother and her grandmother negotiate their relationship and their own identities as women um, and their own um, sort of the, this tension around family secrets through the Aswang. And so it was really the first time that I saw um, this particular story sort of 
taken and um, reinterpreted in an autobiographical way, and I, I it was so powerful, and um, and I think that's I think that's why comics are powerful too, is that you can really play around with mythology and and stories that um, you may not otherwise encounter, and so I teach comics at UC Riverside. Um, I've taught for, I've taught there um, as a lecturer for the past six years. I've taught comics for the past five years. Um, I studied comics in graduate school as well. And um, there's a real interest in comics. Um, we have one of the only creative writing majors uh, throughout the UC system at UC Riverside. And the creative writing 155 um, class is just dedicated to, they call it the graphic novel. We talk about comics. and. Um, and afterwards, there really isn't anything else for them to take. It's a sort of a survey class, um, which is tough for me because for me as an educator, I'm like, there's so many comics out in the world, um, not just in, a, in the physical printed form. There are web comics. There's, um, you know, comics that you can read on, on your phone. Um, and so it's really difficult <laughs> as an educator. So my, my syllabus is constantly shifting and changing. And I, I really... Um, make it a point as an educator, a woman of color, to prioritize underrepresented voices. And um, when I started to construct my syllabus and my course materials, I was pulling from all these different scholarly texts and books and um, assigning those, those particular materials, but it grew to be incredibly expensive for my students. And it was hard for me to find um, scholarship by scholars of color that connected comics to cultural studies, for example, or literary theory. And so um, for me, um, for experiencing comics, um, it was a way to kind of bridge that gap and um, creating an access point for students who they may, they might read, they might be adept in terms of their own visual vocabulary and learning how to tie image and text, but um, what surprised me is that so many of my students didn't know how to read comics or to, um, they felt intimidated by them, which was really interesting. Um, oh, this is, okay, so this is at Comic-Con. Here's me and Linda Berry. <laughs> um, I met her at Comic-Con. There's the fun thing about Comic-Con for people like me who are extremely nerdy is like the folks that I like, there's like five people in line, you know, like, so I was like fourth in line to meet Linda Berry and, um, she spoke at my commencement. Oh, did she yeah. really? That's great. Where did you graduate from? Ringling College of Art and Design. Okay. That's mm -hmm. awesome. Yeah. She was um, great. Yeah. She's incredible. Um, she, in her writing, she jokes about being half Norwegian and half Filipina. Um, but her Nor Norwegian side, like, sucks all the color. <laughs> so, um. She's funny. Um, I, I just enjoy her work. And, um, and so it was a, it was a great um, moment to meet her at Comic-Con. Um, so I know most of you probably know what comics are. This is a definition that um, one of the definitions that I include um, in introducing my students to comics, that it's a medium for telling stories or conveying information through a series of images arranged to be read in a certain order. Um, I have a lot of poets who take my class, and they say, what about, the, what about um, comics that don't tell a narrative, right? Um, so we get into discussions about that, um, and we read comics that aren't necessarily linear in terms of um, a beginning, middle, end. And so we interrogate a lot of these definitions and um, they explore different ways of connecting image and text if through a poem. Um, but a lot of the times my students, they, they think that comics are just about superheroes. Um, they um, will come in with their DC and or Marvel t-shirts, which is great on the first day of class. But um, it's what I find is that in, it becomes very limited um, to what they understand comics are or just what they see, um, mo the movies that are playing in the theater. And so um, my, one of my jobs as um, an educator is to help them see that there are so many different kinds of comics that um, it's not limited to the super, superhero genre. Um, this quarter, I'm really excited to be teaching Elements um, Fire, which is an anthology um, by creators of color, and that's edited by Tanika Stotts. And, um, and 
what I find really um, exciting about teaching Elements Fire is that um, th there are stories, there are short stories that are included in the anthology. And that, for my students, makes it a little bit easier for them to, okay, I can do, I can't do a graphic novel, but I can do a story. So um, they get inspired to focus on a shorter form um, of making comics instead of trying to wrap their heads around something that's like 200 pages. Um, and it's also really neat for them to see folks of color, creators of color who are engaging in speculative fiction um, through comics because you see Riverside, we have the largest, we have the Eaton collection, it's the largest science fiction um, collection in the United States. So we have a lot of students who are really interested um, in speculative literature and so there are all these different intersections in what they want to do in their work. So I have students who are, who've written, um, you know, science fiction um, but they don't know how to, um, or they want to figure out how to um, illustrate their stories or think about their stories in a different way. And so um, this anthology has been really helpful. And Tanika um, talks about her experiences um, editing um, elements in, in the textbook as well. So beyond superheroes, um, one of my students, uh, told me about Check Please, which is a webcomic and really fun. <laughs> and um, I find teaching this class that my students teach me a whole lot more than I probably teach them. Um, they're constantly coming in with manga recommendations, um, webcomics recommendations, and they, they school me on these things. And, um, and they find a lot of relevance too with, um, I have a good section of my students who find more of a connection with webcomics actually. Um, and so there's a good majority that are, that are introduced to comics through DC and Marvel, and then a whole other section that's like, no, I've been reading web comics like for a long time. So I teach comics and um, some people, some administrators at schools, I don't know if they're educators in the room, um, sometimes um, educators, we need um, a way to legitimize what we're doing, which is to me sad, but <laughs> um, but for me, comics are an ideal medium for recursive reading, meaning that students are more apt to reread a comic. And so I've, I teach English 100, which is like a introductory uh, composition class. I teach um, English 101 um, at a local community college. And a lot of the time I'll use comics as a supplementary or I'll pair comics with um, other um, prose that we're reading in class. And students will reread without me asking them, which is, I think is exciting. Um, it's an ideal medium for critical thinking, reading and writing, um, introducing signs and semiotics, building and strengthening upon students' understanding of literary terms and theory, and then connecting in class texts and learning beyond the classroom. Okay, so <clears throat> I talked a little bit about why I um, edited um, Experiencing Comics, but a lot of the scholarship that I found out there um, was really homogenous. Um, a lot of the scholarship I found were written mostly by white male scholars, and there was not a whole lot um, available without my like digging and digging and digging. And so um, I wanted to create a text that um, could create accessibility, not just for students, but for people who are just interested in comics in general. And um, the breakdown of the book is um, the first chapter is reading comics and figuring out vocabulary and terms. Um, the second one is on discussing comics. So looking at other scholars, um, their findings when they um, do a close reading of a comic. Um, the third chapter, is not a whole exhaustive history of comics, but it's looking at different, um, thinking about like the legacies of um, the of comic censorship and how that affect how that has affected um, creators of color in particular. And then the fourth chapter is uh, creating comics. So it's not this book isn't the end all be all, and I would not ever argue that at all. But I was hoping that my students can find a mix of different. Um, experiences. Um, I also interviewed, um, I interviewed over 30 creators, cartoonists, and scholars. And so their interviews and spotlights throughout the book. Um, 
I mentioned the definitions and discussions that are included. Um, there are discussion questions as well for students to, for us to talk about the, the, the work in class, but um, I find that the discussion questions, um, they build on those actually. Um, they, they submit their work on um, our website and um, they offer reflections and analysis, but they'll use the discussion questions as a jumping off point. Um, interactive, engaging activities. Um, there's some scholarly articles by experts in the field comics exercises, and then illustrated comic sections um, throughout the book. Um, this is just one um, example of a spotlight on Ashanti Fortson, who is a, a web cartoonist. And um, I've basically um, shaped some of the interviews and um, highlighted some of the work that, um, by some of the cartoonists who I, who I interviewed. And here's a spotlight on Andy Santagata, who um, has a great uh, digital comic called Trans Men Walking and their experiences um, being trans and, um, and it's more autobiographical as well. And so a lot of my students have been able to think about like, okay, how do I write my own story? Um, and they are learning through the experiences of cartoonists in the book. Here's, um, a colleague of mine, John Jennings, who's a cartoonist, and he uh, co-adapted Kindred by Octavia Butler uh, with Damien Duffy. And so I was able to talk with him about that adaptation process. So the first um, chapter, as I mentioned, is on reading comics. Um, I included um, vocabulary terms and in addition to ways in which we can critically engage with comics. And this is a panel that um, is from a comics poem by Alexander Rothman, who edits um, Inkbrick. And um, this panel um, and this comic actually is a way for students to also think about um, the comic as not just a narrative form. In thinking about critical thinking, um, thinking about critical thinking, <laughs> um, I teach, uh, literature, um, I teach English as well, and um, I found this process called notice and focus, which really helps slow students down. Because sometimes I'll assign comics for them and they'll just flip through it and say, done. <laughs> and so um, this process, which is adapted by Professor David Rossenwasser and Professor Jill Stevens, um, their process of notice and focus, it helps students make observations um, even if they feel very literal, um, but it helps them to retrain their brain into simply um, taking a stock or inventory of what's on that page or in that panel. Um, and through that, they're able to make inferences and connect things to um, literary theory or um, some of the comics scholarship that we're reading. And so th this is a student example um, from um, Black Panther, World of Wakanda. Um, and this student was actually looking at the power dynamics um, between these two characters and, um, and the ways in which the, these two characters are positioned on the staircase. And so this student sort of commented on like how these shifting power dynamics change depending who's, where they're at on that staircase, which was really interesting. Um, the second chapter is um, dedicated to comic scholarship um, by um, experts in the field who have written about um, Black Panther and Vixen. Um, there are, are scholars who've um, tackled gender and racial stereotypes. Um, and there's uh, specific articles written by Ramsey Fawaz who actually uses queer theory to talk about Fantastic Four um, and Jeffrey A. Brown who, um, who writes about Black Panther. And what I find is that at, the, at this level that my, I was teaching an early iteration of this class and a lot of my students have the language to talk about um, critical race theory, but a lot of them don't. And so a lot of, they were in different places and I was hoping that um, in using these articles that bridge could be gapped or that gap could be bridged Yes. <laughs> okay. So um, this chapter just makes connections to literary theory, critical race theory, 
queer theory, intersectionality, um, and that and, uh, these sections also include discussion questions at the end. Um, this third chapter is on the history and background of comics. Um, again, not an exhaustive history, but um, just sections of, um, I feel like there's a lot of holes in comics history. And so this was just an attempt to kind of think about the histories of Latinx and African-American comics and web comics. And um, I was also able to interview Keith Seacott, who is, um, he is a, cartoonist in the Philippines and is really interested in tying the colonial history between the United States and the Philippines and um, did this documentary um, on um, comics in the in the Philippines but um, his his take he's really into film too so there's a lot of in the interview he talks about that relationship as well but um, I was interested in in that history because a lot of it gets lost and um, in the documentary, and I've asked him about this as well, is that there's a lot of women who are in the background um, who are making comics and they're helping their partners make comics, but they're not being documented as in, in the documentary. And so um, I was really interested in, in like um, thinking about that particular, um, this documentary as a, as a way to open up um, and to, to think more about the different versions of, of the history of comics in the Philippines. Well, one of the activities that's included is um, students are able to research cartoonists of color databases and uh, queer cartoonist databases. Have, has, has anyone heard of these? They're free online. And um, Mari Naomi is a cartoonist herself, and she basically created these databases um, in response to publishers saying, well, there are no Palestinian cartoonists, so we can't publish this, or we can't, we need to have a white writer write this experience, or there are no um, Dominican cartoonists. And so this was her way to, to say, hey, there are, I think there's over 3,000 cartoonists included in, in these databases. And um, cartoonists are able to sign themselves up for, for um, to be included. And so if publishers or even um, educators, they can look up, like, I want to help my students highlight um, the experiences of Vietnamese refugees and um, in comics and how can I find that? And so they're able to look through these databases and really f figure out who's out there. But they're, it's incredible to see. And I know that it's exponentially growing um, these databases to the point where she's actually looking for someone to help take over. Okay, and the fourth um, chapter um, is on creating comics. I show my students my comics. They're pretty elementary. <laughs> I have a limited um, capacity to draw. But I show them my, my, my comics because um, I let them know that they don't need to be, they don't have to go to art school to make comics and that they can create their own style um, and they can play around and experiment with um, drawing and, and making stories or making comics poems. I also show them... Um, Ryan North's um, long-running webcomic dinosaur comics. And, um, and this is a template he's used for over 19 years. And it's like from, um, it's clip art, you know? And every day he updates it with a different set of dialogue. And so they get, they get really um, inspired by that. And then this is just an, um, an example from some of the exercises that we've done in class. Um, I do a lot of collaborative comics making in the classroom so that it sort of takes away the pressure for them to um, make comics, but um, the collaborative art process is a, a lot of fun. And then um, what I find is that they start to see how much comics it is collaborative. Um, and um, they start to take off um, with one another's ideas, which is neat to see. So I've, what I've noticed teaching this class, and um, I'm teaching this class this quarter, is that um, students they get so fired up over comics and these are people who maybe this is their first time they've read a comic in, in, in any capacity, but they get excited. And um, this is actually the photos are of my students at a local comic book shop and the owner actually took down their comics and like displayed my students' work, which was really sweet. Um, but they, so many of them have created and organized 
Um, there's like the underground society of comics that this, so a bunch of them got together and created the student organization. Um, some of my students, they, um, they've been, they've organized Latinx comics events at UC Riverside. And, um, and right now they're wanting to, um, they're wanting to collaborate with other departments and seeing how they can, um, use comics in different forms. And, um, and there's lots of events that people are putting on. And so I find that I just get re-energized and excited by um, where the, this, it's just one class, but where it takes um, students. And, and, and I bumped into a student at um, the Orange County Zine Fest and like she took the final project. The, so the final project is they make a 15 page comic. And she took her comic and then she like was selling it at like OCC, OC Zine Fest. I'm like, that's awesome. And so there are all these different ways that they can engage um, in this medium, and it's exciting. So um, that's pretty much it for my end of the presentation. Um, and maybe I can, I don't know if, if, if folks have like just questions offhand you can ask, but we'll have time for questions at the end as well. Okay. And I will um, be your, or your orchestrator person okay. or tech person. Okay, so my name is Nyla, and I am an artist and writer. I specialize in children's entertainment. Uh, I, I work in animation as a writer and storyboard artist, and I also illustrate and write children's books. I have written for Marvel. I'm currently writing for Marvel. I'm working on their upcoming Marvel Rising miniseries. Um, I published a an original graphic novel called MFK, which is available here. I ha, I've published a picture book called How to Find a Fox. I I've always just kind of loved the marriage of writing and art, and that's kind of what has drawn me to not only children's books but comics. So. I, I have a quick presentation, and um, this is actually a presentation I usually use when I visit middle schools, and I haven't looked at it in a while, so we're kind of going to discover what's on it together. <laughs> um, this is me as a kid, engaged in my favorite activity, <laughs> smothering cats. And this is where I grew up. I'm from Maryland. And this is, oh, if you open that PowerPoint. Oh, it's yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I grew up in Maryland. It's a very, uh, very different locale from here. Lots of trees, lots of water. And this, this is where I lived. Um, so you'd like turn into this gravel driveway and go up this hill. And my house, if you turn to next, my house is up this hill. And this, uh, this is a closer uh, view of it. Um, this part of the presentation I included uh, because I also, I, my picture book, How to Find a Fox, is kind of based on my experiences at home, which involved a lot of animals. And these are just some of the creatures you'd find wandering around our yard. That is not my cat. Um, this is my cat. And this is me living in Los Angeles. So this is, this is more how I live now. Um, when I was younger, like middle school and high school, I drew like this. I was very into dragons. Very, very into dragons. <laughs> And as a kid, these were the comics that I was interested in. Um, I had an older brother, just two years older than me, and he was more into like the Marvel and DC comics. Like he and his friends would go to the comic shop and 
I was never invited. So I, I didn't really experience a comic shop until I was much older, like almost an adult. So a lot of the comics I read were like the Sunday strips in the newspaper and also manga. Um, manga started filtering more into the U.S. when I was a teenager and I really like glommed onto it. Animation for me was kind of a gateway into comics. Um, a lot of, you know, a lot of comics get adapted into animated television shows and uh, film. And so uh, I would watch these shows and then later read the books. And so my book MFK is a middle grade and it's, it's a fantasy adventure about a girl who is returning her mother's ashes to her homeland, but she also has superpowers that get her into trouble wherever she goes. I'd been working on this story since I was 18 or 19 years old, so by the time I actually started developing it as a webcomic, the idea was like 10 years old. It's just something that... I'd plug away at just like write notes and make little character designs in my free time, but between school and work, I never really had time to sit down and create a comic. When I finally decided to, I, I knew I wanted it to be a webcomic. Webcomics were also something that I was really into when I was a teenager, and I, I just loved the idea of a comic that you could read online for free. Like, you didn't have to go to a bookstore, you didn't have to check anything out or buy anything. You could just, like, queue up a browser and read it. So this is the first character design for MFK I ever did. And this character is actually not the main character. She has not shown up in the story yet, but it is the the first design that, you know, I, I designed it and thought I need to do something with this. And then later, uh, MFK was born. So the way I work is I start out with a basic concept for a story. Um, and this is, this is the very original idea I had for MFK that I, I wrote this down like 10 or 15 years ago. It has since changed a lot. I went through college and then I went through college again. I went to art school and when I revisited this idea like 10 years later, I wanted to update it based on all the information that I'd learned about comics and art and writing in that time. And these are also early designs for the characters. These two are very early designs. And this guy, this was like a weird like, you know, manga always has like this old weird dude kind of just like, <laughs> just a kooky, like knows everything. But, and I guess, you know, like, a lot of modern animation has that too, like Rick and Morty. And so I had this like old doctor guy, but he, he's, he's since changed a lot. I actually took two older characters and combined them in the one. And so these are uh, comic pages that I'd also developed uh, mid 2000s, like 2004, 2005. And so, you know, time passed and I kind of let this idea sit. And then my sister moved to New Mexico and I went to visit her. And driving around New Mexico kind of reignited the story in me. Like I, the locale there just like seeing the desert for the first time, I knew like this is what I wanted for this story. And so I revisited the visuals again. You can keep going. And so I took another crack at designing the world based on my experiences in New Mexico. I knew I wanted a desert locale. And so I, my design process is to focus on silhouette and just the shape of the environment and run through different possibilities.
And I also do this on a smaller scale with like buildings and props and vehicles and that sort of thing. And so here we are in 2010 and I really like, I'm, I graduated school and I was unemployed and I couldn't find a job and so I had all this free time and I decided I'm going to do this webcomic. And so I started updating uh, the story, the characters. Uh, my main character, Abby, like the image on the left is the original design for her. Uh, the This is a more current pass that I did, one of the early new concept pieces for this character. She's 14, she is kind of, she's been on her own for a long time and she's kind of a rough and tumble type of character. She's very serious and focused on her personal mission of getting to her homeland. And along the way she meets Jaime who is the complete opposite. He's been locked in the same town for all of his life. He's super bored and super uh, inquisitive and adventurous and Abby presents an opportunity for him to get away from his hometown and experience the world. He's kind of a comic foil for her. And so I started developing more characters. I wanted a very large full cast. Like this is, a story like this is a great opportunity to play with different designs. And so, this is where I work. I, I do a lot of my work digitally on a Cintiq. And occasionally I also work traditionally as well. And there's just cats everywhere all the time. So I start with the script and I break it up page by page, panel by panel, and focus on story beats and also dialogue. And so the, these are photo reference that I pulled for the environment when I, like my original concept for the book was a black and white comic, but in this new digital age, everyone's doing color, so I decided to do color as well. And so painting a desert presented an interesting challenge because everything is brown, but I still wanted to incorporate a lot of color, color into the story. And so these are new comic pages. Uh, this is, these are actually pages that are in the book. With, with comics, I start with a thumbnail based on the script. And this is just laying out the panels, uh, the major shapes, basically the overall look of the page. From there, I do a pencil kind of sketch stage where I refine a little bit just to, like here, I'm figuring out what do the facial expressions, like what is the particular acting, um, what is the exact placement of every element in each panel. And once I have that solidified, I move into inks. Uh, a lot of people work with black inks. I tend not to, so my, my art has a softer look to it. And so, the next stage is called flatting. It's, I'm just laying in like the flat blocks of color. At this point, I'm not too worried about uh, what I actually want these colors to look like. I'm just, this is kind of a prelimi preliminary stage to actually coloring. And then, then I color and I'm this, I'm getting closer to the final look for the page. I'm kind of balancing colors panel by panel, um, you know, figuring out what areas I want to pop and what areas I want to kind of push back into the background. And so this is a second pass where I'm adding a little bit of shadow and texture. And then final, this is, I, I do a special effects stage. Uh, it's basically lighting where I kind of, I add some glow and I figure out the lighting conditions. I pump up colors a bit more. I saturate a little more. And this is the final, the final look. 
Now, in art school, I studied 3D animation. So that also gives me the benefit of if I have a very complex um, wide shot that I can't figure out, like I'm not really great at perspective, I can render it in 3D and then just draw over it like so. So the book collects the first three chapters of the story and it's about 128 pages. The story also continues online, so chapter four is currently available to read, though it's not in the book. And these are a couple of pages from chapter four. Um, through this process, my drawing has gotten better and better, so you definitely can see a difference in how I draw and what the characters look like as you go through the story. And that is it. Uh, I also, I've worked on other stories. Um, I, I wrote a short story for Marvel in the year of Marvel's anthology about Rocket Raccoon and Tippy Toe Squirrel from Squirrel Girl uh, teaming up to fight evil. It's very cute. Uh, I also did a story for the recent spider get an event. It, like, along with Into the Spider-Verse, they also did a Spider-Geddon, like, full comic event that doesn't really tie into Into the Spider-Verse. They just kind of coincided together. Marvel's very interesting in that they, like, they have all of these different uh, branches of storytelling, and they don't all connect, but they all have parallels. And so I did a written story for that. I'm currently writing Marvel Rising, and I think that comes out in March. Um, my latest project is a middle grade graphic novel called Creaky Acres, and it's about a little black girl who moves to a new town where she is the only black girl, and her family is the only black family, and it's about her learning how to fit in in school and also fit in at the stable that isn't up to her usual standards. The main character is named Nora. She's 10 years old, and that is her best friend, Hay Fever, who is the best thoroughbred horse. Um, at this new stable, she meets Laura, and Laura's horse, Athena. Laura says Athena is a purebred Arabian, Arabian horse, but she's actually a mule, but Laura doesn't know that. Um... Nora also meets Wilson, who is a little older. He's 12 years old, and he rides one of the school horses named Flea, who is afraid of everything. Flea constantly throws Wilson as he's riding, but he still loves her. And then there's Dizzy, who is the youngest at the stable, and she is paired with Dynamo, who's kind of a, he's kind of a wild horse, which works out because Dizzy is also a wild sort of kid. And so when we pitched the story, I did a few sample pages and um, just to show publishers, this is what we want this comic to look like. This stuff has since changed since we're now, the, the book has sold, it's gonna be published by Penguin. And so now I'm, I'm doing the actual pages. So they're gonna look a little different, but this is um, essentially what the book is gonna be. When's the uh, publishing, publication date? That's a good question, because <laughs> the book uh, originally was gonna be 200 pages, and now it's at two, 272, so it's, it's kind of a lot. So <laughs> I'm drawing as fast as I can. Hopefully uh, I'll be done later this year, and then I'm not sure, but. It'll, it'll be on bookshelves eventually. Yeah. Creaky Acres. Cool. Yeah, and so that's me. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Nyla is also in, um, the reason why I invited Nyla um, is she's also a contributor in Experiencing Comics, uh, you know, along with all of her other work. So um, maybe we can open it up to folks if people have questions or comments or we can talk if people don't want to talk to us. <laughs> so it's totally up to um, all of you. So 
Yes. Caroline, I have a question. Since, um, since a lot of your, uh, I guess I would say your day job is writing, drawing and writing comics for big corporations, and then also you're working on your own personal uh, comics, how do you balance working on both at the same time? Um, how do I balance my, you know, day job versus my personal work. Uh, it, it gets very hard. Um, I generally have to prioritize the paycheck. Uh, so the stuff I'm getting paid for always takes priority. And so often I do have to push my personal work to the side. Um, when I was doing Creaky Acres, I had a full-time job and, and that worked out. It, it was a lot of work, you know, I'd be home, I'd be at work every day and then I'd come home and work at night. And so I was just like constantly working all the time, but there was a balance there. You know, I, there was a routine, uh, these days, the freelance work, um, takes up most of my time. And so I'm not always able to squeeze personal work in. And lately, like, you know, on top of the graphic novel stuff, I also illustrate children's books. So I, I recently illustrated um, for Rick Riordan, who did Percy Jackson and the Heroes of Olympus. They're re-releasing uh, the books for the 10-year anniversary, and so I did covers for those, and I also do covers for Dactyl Hill Squad, and so it's it's a lot, and then, you know, I write for Marvel, so all of that stuff is kind of taking up all of my time, and I'm hoping one day I'll be able to get back to the personal stuff, but for right now, yeah, it's mostly, um, you know, paying the bills. Do you have folks demanding for more chapters of MFK? Yes. <laughs> Yes, and I have students who are. <laughs> oh gosh, yeah, and I, I want to do more, but you know, yeah. it's just a matter of getting back to it. And you know, there are also other stories I want to tell, and I do have um, a new picture book coming out, like eventually. Uh, so, yeah, like it's it's a lot, and I'm one person, and kind of that's that's also. Uh, the challenge of being an author illustrator and doing mm. both because writing and illustrating are both time consuming uh, things. And when you've got to focus on both, it just, you know, it takes up all of your time. But I'm, I'm hoping one day I'll be able to get back to MFK and other things, but we'll see. Yeah. Yes. Um, so my first picture book was How to Find a Fox, and I, I decided to go the route of finding a literary agent and, like, letting that agent find a publisher. Um, getting ready for submission took a long time. I, I did a lot of research, and when I first started, when I first decided I wanted to illustrate uh, children's books. Like it took a long time for me to figure out a style, a marketable style, and also to figure out how to write picture books because they're actually very challenging. So, like coming up with a story that worked that I could present to the publishing world took a long time. But from there, I kind of lucked out. I I found a literary agent. Once I went on submission, I found a literary agent fairly quickly, like within eight months, which is actually pretty good. And once I had that agent, we went on submission with the picture book and it sold in two weeks, which is really fast. So I, you know, that first picture book wasn't too bad. It takes some people a lot longer. Um, my latest picture book was kind of a strange concept. And we we submitted to nine editors and they all rejected it. And then we submitted to nine more and one made an offer and the rest rejected it. So I had like 18 reject, 17, 18 rejections, which like surprised me it's you know it took a lot longer than how to find a fox did but it's still not that bad um uh the author of 
Sophie Squash, which is a really good picture book. I believe she got 121 rejections before it finally sold. Yeah, and it's it's so funny because the book is so good. It's just so wholesome. But she she was on submission for a really long time with it. So it depends. I I think I've been very fortunate, but it can it can take a long time. Can you talk yeah. about um, publishing? MFK into print and your decision for that? Yeah. So I, you know, I started it as a webcomic and originally I did self-publish print editions of each chapter. I, I found a little publisher in Pennsylvania that uh, printed in color and was pretty affordable and so I would just pay for copies out of pocket and sell them at conventions. And then I got a literary agent, and I showed them the story, and they decided they wanted to sell it. So we went, you know, we went through the submission process with that, and it took about a year, and we got one offer. So that that submission process was kind of grueling. Um, the The publisher, Inside Editions, was starting. They they had a history of publishing like specialty books, a lot of art books, a lot of licensed books. Um, I think last year they printed a cookbook for The Walking Dead. That's <laughs> that's the sort of stuff they do. And then they decided they wanted to publish comics. So MFK was one of their first comic titles. Um, essentially, I sent them the art and they formatted it for print form. There wasn't too much of an editing process. Uh, the great thing about publishing with Inside Editions is the book is kind of everywhere. Like it's really uh, well distri distributed and that's partly because their distributor is Simon & Schuster, which is a huge publisher. Um, and they decided to go with this more European for format. This is kind of an unusual size for a middle grade graphic novel, but this is a very common size in Europe and, you know, Europe loves comics. So it's, you know, it turned out to be a very beautiful book. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.